So the text we're looking at today is at the end of a, um, it's really a, a two-chapter rant where Paul is addressing um, the bragging and the boasting and the grandstanding that these other so-called apostles, in fact, one time Paul even calls them like super apostles, that's what they, they thought of themselves, the, this, the, the, the boasting and the grandstanding that these guys were doing in order to impress the church in Corinth and get on their good graces and, and use the church as a platform for their false teaching. So if you were to go back in chapter 10, verse 8, chapter 11, verse 1, verse 6, verse 16, Paul mentions that he could boast and, and he could brag and, or I'm about to boast or I'm, a, I'm about to brag, but... And every time he mentions that, he calls that kind of boasting, that kind of bragging, he calls it foolishness. See, when when Paul, he just starts to consider ranting and consider raving about all of his qualifications in comparison to Jesus, Paul comes to this place where he he just can't make himself do it. He calls it foolishness. Over and over again throughout chapter 10 and verse 11, in chapter 11, he does this. Paul thinks, why? Why as a Christian, why as a leader in the church of Jesus Christ, would I ever want to boast about my accomplishments? Would I ever want to boast about my strengths? Why would I get up in the the house church circle and run my mouth about me? But in the verses that we just read, and the ones that we're going to study today, Paul does just that. He ticks off all the ways that he could boast like these super apostles. And all along the way, he reminds us this kind of talk, this kind of boasting, this kind of bragging, it is foolishness for Christians. See, Paul knew, and we know this now too, but Paul knew in the moment that he was in no way inferior to these false teachers. But to prove it by stooping to their level and boasting about himself was contrary to the very gospel that he preached. So he was loath to do the thing that they were doing. But in our passage today, he figures out a way to do it. He figures out a way in this letter to show the Corinthians and prove to these so-called apostles that he is superior to them. And he does it in ways that they can understand. And he does it in a way that makes much of Jesus and not himself. That's what he's doing. So we, we learn three things in this text, and I, I, want, I would love for you to kind of make a note in your margin. My Bible has zero margin because the print is so large, so maybe not in your margin if you're like me. Maybe somewhere on your phone or make a note. Three things that I want you to uh, pull out of the text today. The first thing is that when it comes to boasting, we're to boast in Jesus, not ourselves. We're to boast in Jesus, not ourselves. Look at verse 21b and verse 22. Paul says... In whatever anyone dares to boast, I'm talking foolishly, I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. So you see, Paul asks three questions here, and every one of these questions have to do with a person's relationship to the Old Testament. And in all of these, the Hebrew, the Israelite, the descendants of Abraham, Paul is saying that any qualification that one of these so-called false teachers might bring to bear, um, bring to the table related to being Jewish, Paul has all of those and he probably has more. There's just no way that anybody could top Paul's Hebrewness. 
Paul says in Philippians 3 that he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a, of the people of Israel. He was a tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means not just culturally, but ethnically. And in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. As for zeal, he was persecuting the church for legalistic righteousness that comes from the law. He was faultless. So as far as Paul and these false apostles is concerned, as far as his life and theirs, there is no way that any of them could say that they were more Hebrew than Paul. The name Paul embodied everything there was to be about being a Jew. Paul was thoroughly Jewish. I want you to feel the weight of that for a moment because in verse 21, he says to talk about it is foolish. The core of who he is, the heart of his identity, everything that made Paul, Paul, to brag about that as a means of talking about his position of authority in the church was foolishness. To put any confidence in all of that Hebrewness as a means of justifying himself before men was foolishness. See, when it comes to defining who we are, to boast in our heritage is foolishness. When it comes to defining who we are, to boast in our namesake is foolish. To boast in our bloodline is foolish. To boast in our collegiate pedigree is foolish. To prove ourselves to other means, by any other means, by any other means is foolishness. Trey's 16, my oldest son, the one that's 6'9", right here in the middle. And um, he's getting flyers in the mail for colleges. And this week he got one from Ole Miss. He'll never see it. I don't want him to see it because I cheer for Mississippi State growing up. It had a big hottie toddy on the front. I'm like, this is terrible. I literally just put it in the trash. He's not going. It's not going to happen. Why? Because I, I associate a certain kind of pedigree to an Ole Miss graduate, right? Does anybody else do that? Come on. How many of you are Tennessee fans? Raise your hands, right? No? No. They hate to brag. No, they hate to brag. That's right. They're the Mac Davis of the SEC. Yeah. That's awesome. No. But we, so when you hear that somebody is from a certain school, you associate certain things according to that, that pedigree where they, they come from. You know, maybe if you grow up in a small town, you have the name, like the family name that define, like, oh, he's her, bless this last name, or she's a, that last name. And then, oh, she married into that last name. It carries with it in some community a certain kind of culture. And Paul has all of that as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He has all of that when it comes to his life as a religious person. He has all that and he calls it foolishness. He doesn't want to boast in the thing that the Corinthians want him to boast in. He puts it all aside. And the reason he calls it foolishness is because he's gotten Jesus. And he would rather have an identity as a follower of Jesus than an identity of all the things that made him who he was to that point. We just read it in Philippians 3, 7. Everything that was a gain to me, all the Hebrew stuff that I just read, I consider it a loss. So when it comes to defining who we are and talking about who we are and all those things, Paul says, I'm not going to boast in all the things that could make me me in the eyes of the world. I'm going to boast about who Jesus is and what he's done to make me his. It's a very different view of the self. And so we're not going to boast in those things of the world. We're going to boast in who Jesus is and what he's done to make me me. The second thing we see in this passage is that we should boast in our defeat, not our victories. 
boast in our defeat, not our victories. Look at verse 23. Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one. Isn't that surprising? I mean, if you think about the flow of the passage, I tried to read it with that flow earlier. Don't we expect Paul to say, are they servants of Christ? So am I. Are they a Hebrew? So am I. Israelite? So am I. Descendant of Abraham? So am I. Servant of Christ? So am I. But it's not what he says. He says, are they servants of Christ? I can't believe I'm getting ready to say this. Please don't talk like this, but I'm going to talk like this. I'm a better one. I'm superior to them. Now, Paul doesn't really think that these other apostles are actually servants of Christ. When he says, are they servants of Christ, he doesn't mean literally. He means, are they claiming to be a servant of Christ? Or, or are they servants of Christ according to the criteria that you guys have been using? But whatever that is, I want you to know that I'm an actually a servant of Christ. And because Paul actually is a servant of Christ, you would expect him to start boasting in all of the things that would prove to the search committee at Corinth that he was worthy of being their apostle. Things like, well, I've established so many churches. I've preached the gospel in more lands and more ethnic groups than anybody. I've traveled more miles. I've won more converts. I've written more books. I've raised more money. I've dominated more councils. I've walked with God more fervently. I've had more visions. I've commanded the greatest crowds and performed miracles. All things that are true, by the way, of Paul. And isn't that the sort of list that many pagans back in Paul's day would actually produce, albeit with very different entries. There was that, Paul's following a model, a cultural model, so that the Corinthians would understand exactly what he was trying to say. So back in Paul's day, the, the, you know, kings and nobles would write about themselves in that way. Caesar Augustus wrote a, wrote a eulogy for himself. And it had things like all the list of his accomplishments. One time I did this, twice I did that, three times I did thus, and many times other I did this. So Paul's aware of this style and he knows that they'll understand it. But Paul, following the style, doesn't follow the substance. Right? Instead of talking about all of his exploits like a king would, instead of talking all about his victories, instead of talking about all the places he's gotten to travel and see the world like these super apostles were doing, Paul details for you and I his sufferings, his losses, his shames, and his defeats. And if you'll remember, if you were here for the study of Acts 9 last week, and Paul's conversion, I pulled out a point from the text that to become a Christian is to gain a purpose that requires sacrifice, which is to say that one of the ways you know someone is truly following Jesus is that their purpose in this world requires them to sacrifice according to achieve that purpose. And this was never more true for Paul who had far more labors, far more imprisonments from the text, far worse beatings, and many times he was near death. Now look at this list. If you, if you were to kind of look through this whole list in verses um, 27 and following, or 24 and following, you, you could categorize these into physical sufferings, circumstantial sufferings, and relational suffering. So look at, the, look at the physical one. First you have imprisonment. So we're early in Paul's career. I mean, this is maybe closer to the middle, early in Paul's career. He's already faced imprisonment. He's been in prison many times. Luke doesn't write about them all in the gospel, in the, in the book of Acts. There are many, many times. And, and Paul chooses to lead with, with imprisonment. He's already beginning his, his irony. So he suffered physically in imprisonment. And then we see this word beatings, right? So you see this in 
verse uh, 24, and so on. So there are all these kinds of beatings. The first one is this, 40 lashes minus one. I want you to underline this, from the Jews. The Hebrew of Hebrews is finding his identity, boasting in Jesus, not what makes him Hebrew, and it's costing him his body in relationship to all the other Hebrews. So 40 minus 1, here's what that, here's what that means. So the Jews had a, the Old Testament limited the number of times you could be lashed to 40. But the practice in Paul's day was to keep the limit to 39 so that the guy, the officer overseeing the lashing didn't go over 40 and get in trouble as well for breaking the law, if you can imagine. So the, the, and then the, they had to divide the number by three. So the, the way they got around with that, because it's 39, they got to divide it by three. So the way they got around that is they, 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 they made this lash, and it's, it's about a foot long. And it's divided into three strips. A couple of them are calf hide, and, and then one was, was donkey, if you can imagine. And so it's got three lashes on it. And so they would tie Paul down to pillars on his back on the ground, and then they would do the first third on his chest. And then when those, those, those four or five were done, they'd turn him over, lay his lashed chest into the ground, and then they would do the remaining lashes on his back. And he did that five times. There's a couple of things I want to point out about that. First of all, Paul's a pretty tough guy, <laughs> right? But more than physical fitness or just brute strength or endurance, how committed do you think Paul was to taking the gospel to the Jews? There's no questioning that. He's not finding his identity in his Hebrewness when it cost him this five times at this stage in his career to bring the gospel to them. Three times he said he was beaten by the rods. This was a Roman practice. One of these is recorded in Acts 16, but there are others. There's no limit to the number of blows a Roman could give you. They could be hit anywhere on your body. You were naked when it happened. So the charge brought against Paul for this was probably disturbing the peace. The gospel that Paul preached was a huge social disruptor, to say nothing of it being a disruptor to the lives um, who proclaim it. So there will, likewise, there will be moments in our life in which we experience shame and rejection because of our commitment to the gospel, and this is what happened with Paul. One time he says in verse 25, I was stoned by mobs, which is a reference to Acts 14, where this happened in Lystra. This is just mob violence. So physically, it's cost him with the Jews. Physically, it's cost him with the Romans, which is his citizenship. And physically, it has cost him just with the population at large. Paul's commitment to the gospel never polled well. Nobody would have voted for Paul. Look at all the trouble it caused. Look at all the trouble it caused him. And here is Paul boasting in these experiences. This is what he leads with on his pastoral resume. All the times his faithfulness to the gospel has cost him his physical health and his relationships with others. And it was circumstantially difficult as well. He had three different shipwrecks by this time. 
one of which had him clinging to the open, uh, clinging to wreckage in the open sea. He never really had a home in verse 26. And because of this, he had all these constant experiences with nature and thieves that always just threatened his life or, or made his life miserable. So he suffered circumstantially as well. And, it, and as I've mentioned, it, it cost him relationships. His body hurt, his life hurt, and he had very tr- little true friends. He was abandoned by every people group and in every geographical location or threatened. And if that weren't bad enough, look at verse 28 and 29, where Paul did manage to see fruit in the churches that he planted. He constantly carried this burden of the congregations on him. 28, not to mention other things. There are other things, but there, and not to mention those. There is this. This is the cherry on top. The daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? See, Paul's view, his concern for all the churches, you talk about all the physical stuff, talk about all the circumstantial stuff, talk about all the relational stuff. If you really want to talk about what burdened Paul in his ministry, it would be his concern, not just for the organization of the churches, which he mentions in verse 28, but the individuals who are making them up because he knows almost all of them in his church plan endeavors. Who's weak and I'm not weak? I'm praying for this brother right now, he says, that he's weak and I'm weak with him. I'm that empathetic. I have that much compassion, Latin, suffer with, with suffering. That's what he has with him. So Paul is, Paul is boasting, he is bragging, he is grandstanding, not in his triumphs, all the church plants that I had, all the people have come to the Lord through my ministry. That's not even on his tongue. What's, to his, what's on his tongue to this church that he planted is not how awesome he is, but how much suffering he has done for the gospel's sake. It's ironic. He does all the things that the Corinthians are doing, but he boasts not in who he is or what he's done, but he boasts in Christ and what he's done in and through him. And lastly, verse 30, Paul says, we're to boast in our weakness, not our strength. So Paul has used a lot of irony to reject the criteria of these super apostles. And now in verse 30, he turns in a new direction and he boasts about an event. In fact, your Bible may not even read these two things together. It may separate these verses out in the heading, but I think these all, these all go together. Look at verse 30 through 33. Paul is like the, this is the, the end cap of his argument. He said, if boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. And here's the ultimate weakness. In Damascus, a ruler under King Aratus guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me, so I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and I escaped from his hands. So that's, this is fascinating. Because I, when I first read this multiple times, I thought, what is weak about this? This sounds awesome. This sounds cool. Like, dude, you got into a basket and you went down the, what are you, like Tom Cruise going down the building in Saudi Arabia somewhere? Like, this is amazing that you did this incredible thing. This is like, you know, CIA undercover 
crazy stuff. And that's what's shameful about this. What is weak about this? Like you, it's like a teenager sneaking out of a second story bedroom late at night, you know, to do something really awesome. Like what, what do you mean? Well, two things. Think about how Paul went into Damascus. Acts chapter 9. And in chapter 8. Paul went into Damascus, into Damascus proudly, and he went in confidently, and he went in as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul went into Damascus as the predator hunting prey, his Christians. And now he's leaving Damascus under the cover of darkness as one of the hunted. So I think it's quite possible that Paul looked back on this moment as the one in which the last little bit of pride in his life about being a Pharisee, I think that maybe that was the moment where it just left him when he's in a basket that smells like rotten, dead fish being lowered out of the city wall, the very one that he marched into with great pride and pomp and circumstance on the prowl. And that's where his pride just finally died. That's where he became weak. But the second observation, and this goes to culture and context and just some of the things I just love about the Bible so much. Remember what I said earlier about Caesar Augustus and him having his own eulogy? And you know, one time I did this and two times I did that and three times I did these things and I did all this other stuff as more. As it turns out, that, that during, during Paul's time, one of the finest military awards that you could get as a soldier was called the Corona Morales. A corona Morales. And you got this award as a soldier if you were the first one to scale a city wall and enter into the city. And you can imagine all of the things that you'd have to overcome if you were the first soldier to scale a wall and survive the battle, Right? In long enough to earn the reward. So now I want you to compare such a person with Paul in this moment. The man who is first up the wall faces the enemy head on, but here Paul says, I was the first one down the wall in a basket that reeked of fish, and I did it under the cover of darkness. You see what Paul is doing. While all of these so called super apostles are off showing their ministerial war medals and how they've scaled the walls and fought spiritual enemies, Paul tells about how he ran away in the face of the enemy. Paul was 100% dedicated to proving to the Corinthians how inadequate, insufficient, and weak he was. So what? So I want to, I want to share with you three practical things and one really beautiful thing from this, from this passage. How do we, what do we do? Number one. Paul, excuse me, I want you to consider the cost of following Jesus. If we don't come from much, if we haven't accomplished much, and we can't impress anybody very much, then giving our lives to Jesus and boasting in Jesus is kind of an easier no-brainer thing to do. And if we really think we are somebody, and we really think that we've accomplished quite a good bit, and we think that we really are quite impressive when it comes to doing the things that we do, then exchanging all of that for Jesus and boasting in our weaknesses instead of our strengths, that's a much more difficult pill to swallow. So consider the cost and make the right choice. 
I would say to you that whatever you think you can accomplish, whoever you think you are by heritage, whoever you think you may be by all the things that you think you've done, none of them compare to the work, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And certainly none of them are as comforting and, then, and as rewarding and as powerful. Consider the cost. Secondly, we talked about this in our class this morning. We need to be greatly ashamed of boasting about our strengths, about our skills, about our victories, about our training, about our successes and our, and our productivity as if we either earned or deserved these things or if having those things makes us more acceptable to God. He's not impressed if you're awesome. He's super impressed with himself because he is awesome. He is the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most amazing being that's ever created. And we are not ever going to do anything to impress him and make him say, I picked that one based on his works. I picked that one based on his heritage. I picked that one based on his accomplishments. He's never going to do it. So if we have strengths, if we have passions, if we have zeal, and if we have knowledge, and if we do see in our lives us contributing well to society and well to our families and well to the church, we should be very quick never to put our hope in those things or our enthusiasm on our ability to do those things. We should be very quick to be humble. And boast in Him, not ourselves. Go home today, after the business meeting, after communion, and go to YouTube and type in Brian Regan, the me monster. Or Brian Regan, walk on the moon. And you will see a 10-year-old, four-minute comedic bit that will absolutely elate you and cut you to the heart. That's your practical homework today. And I think in order to be that practical, we need to believe something beautiful. We need to believe Philippians, 3, uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 10. Because this passage written by Paul reminds us of Jesus, the one who called Paul to live this kind of life. What did Jesus do? You want to know why Paul talked about this, why he lived this way? Because Jesus did the same thing. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him. And he gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray together and we'll have our invitation time. Um, Father, we do ask that you would um, make much of yourselves in our lives. And therefore, we would, we would be humble people. That we would be like Moses, the meekest man who ever walked the earth other than your son. Who do not hold his accomplishments and his calling and his skill set or his heritage over anyone, but who very humbly and very meekly and very gently loved others and never thought more highly of himself than he ought. That we would be, that we would just be people defined by the Sermon on the Mount. That the Beatitudes would define us as a, as a church body and as individuals. That we would be broken and poor in spirit 
that we would boast, Lord, not in anything that we think we may come from because of our name or where we're from, that we would not boast of or think of anything that we have accomplished and we have certain strengths or talents, that we would not boast in any of those things, that we would boast in who you are and what you have done in your son Jesus, and that our lives would match. So, Father, this requires us to consider the cost. We, we need to know. We need to think about it. We need to understand what we're stepping into when it means to follow you. So show us how beautiful the gospel is. Make it an incredibly powerful affection, one that makes it really no choice at all to come to you and to stay and walk with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.